I'll begin this morning by asking you a fairly basic question. I usually begin by reading the passage, but I wanted to ask you a question to grip your attention. What does a or what does Christian maturity look like? What should a mature Christian look like? What behaviors should be a part of the overall life and personality of a mature disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's an interesting question to ponder. Your mind, perhaps, went to an unattainable lifestyle, something that you know exists, something that's impossible for you to personally grasp. You might have thought, well, that's something that I can't be, something that I can't do. Or maybe you thought of a faithful brother or sister in Christ as you thought about the traits that represent or depict Christian maturity. Maybe if I ask the question, what does Christian maturity look like? You remember a brother or a sister in Christ from your childhood, someone that you know and remember that you miss. We think about our dear brother Carl who passed away just a couple of weeks ago and how he always depicted Christian charity and grace and kindness, but also great strength in the faith. We received several letters about him in the mail and as people pay tribute to him in their memorial gifts to our church, they would often refer to the fact that for 50 years of knowing him, they've never known him to do something out of character for a Christian, but how he depicted for them what a Christian looked like. This morning, we consider Paul's goal for the lives of Titus' hearers. That is to say, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete to set in order things that are wanting and ordain men in every city. But as Titus goes and he preaches the word of God, he instructs congregations, he trains people, the sorts of things that Paul expects of us as Christians and that Christ expects of us as Christians will be the things that we read through and study through today in our message. Now, as we think about these traits of a disciple, as we called them, what Christian maturity is to look like, we'll say up front that in this passage, you find specific instruction to every single demographic in the church and every single demographic in our congregation today. Sometimes we read of general instructions to churches in these epistles or in the sermons by various ministers of the gospel and the Bible, but you have here in this passage a very specific list that touches on what a young man ought to aspire towards as a follower of Christ, or you find wisdom that is written to an aged man. You find instruction written to a young woman. You find instruction written to an aged woman. And so in this chapter in the passage that we consider today. In fact, further on in this passage, you even find advice scripturally given to servants and masters. You find every single demographic in the world, all of us, and something specifically written to all of us. Paul would come to the conclusion of this thought in verse 11 and write, "...the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men." teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The sum of everything that we'll study today is that God's grace has appeared to all, and all there not meaning every human being on the planet, because we know that there are human beings on the planet who are not recipients of God's grace. Jesus preached very pointedly to them, and he says, "You're of your father the devil. He would tell them in John 10, you're not of my sheep. He would say to them in Matthew 23, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You're a generation of vipers who cannot escape the damnation of hell. But the grace of God hath appeared to all types of men. When you read the word all in the Bible, understand it usually in the New Testament translates from a Greek word that means either all of a certain type or some of all types. And based upon the context of this chapter, we know that what Paul meant there was that God's grace has appeared to all types of people, to wealthy people, to impoverished people, 
The grace of God hath appeared to people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. The grace of God has appeared, the grace of God that brings salvation, has appeared to people who are servants in the first century, people who are in servitude to another. But as Paul would say in the book of 1 Timothy, it's even appeared to kings and for those who were in authority. God has people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, and because of that, His grace that brings salvation hath appeared to them And so you find people in every single demographic of every nation, male and female, old and young, that have been taught some things by God's grace that has brought them salvation. Now, looking at verse 12, looking at verse 11, God's grace brings salvation to all sorts of men. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So you might wonder, what is the point of Paul bringing all of this to our attention earlier in Titus chapter 2? If God's grace brings salvation and that salvation teaches us to do these things, why does Paul spend the 10 verses before that exhorting us how to live? God's grace teaches us to do these things and the word of God teaches us how. And the word of God teaches us what? So, you have been born of the Spirit of God. Grace is what quickens you when you were dead in sins. You have been taught from the heart that it is a good thing to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this world looking for the coming of Christ. And yet through the Scriptures, we are taught how we ought to do that. We are taught exactly what it is that we are to do You might say that rather than having a zeal, but not according to knowledge, we have the knowledge that informs the godly zeal that is of him from the new birth revealed to us in this passage. We'll also point out as we begin looking at this text that though we have a nature that is of God, the laws of God written on our hearts and our minds, though the Spirit of God is within us, And we possess the nature of the Spirit. As long as we live in this world, we still have the flesh, which we must put to death each and every day so that we can be the type of people that we read of in this passage. And so today we begin by acknowledging that first must come the new birth and that it is grace that brings salvation. And we are taught in the new birth that we ought to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We yearn for righteousness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. And here we are trained and taught what righteousness looks like. Again, traits of a disciple. Now we'll read this passage for you beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 and we'll read down to verse 8. Originally we intended to mention verses 9 and 10 of this passage, but I don't think that time will allow us to do that, so we'll go as far as verse 8 together today and continue this thought next week. Paul writes to Titus, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and in patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. Good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. That's a lot of reading at one time. 
But I wanted you to see the full scope of what Paul brings to our attention in Titus chapter 2. Tying in the concept of servants and masters, you have a couple of financial demographics brought into this passage. In the verses following, you have a word for everyone in this room today. Now, as we introduce that to you and we read that to you and we present it to you for your hearing, what I want you to understand today, first of all, is that the Word of God is relevant for you no matter who you are. In this room, there are people of every demographic today, and God's Word has something for you. It instructs you. It encourages you. You say, I'm a young woman. The Word of God surely doesn't have anything for me, but the Word of God has something for you. If you're an aged man who has lived decades on this planet and you're ready to go home and be with Jesus, the Word of God has something instructive for you. It has a word for each and every one of us here today. Now we begin in verse 1, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That might be a confusing statement for us because of the way we use the word become in the English language today. The word become here doesn't have reference to something coming into being. He said that became a very bad sermon in a hurry. And we would have reference to something coming into being. We might become the employee of someone. We might become family as someone is married. We might become a homeowner when we sign the mortgage for the first time. But the word become here doesn't have reference to something coming into being. It's a different definition in our English language, and it's used this way today, though a minority of cases. It was used much more often in history. The word become means to make something attractive or appealing. And so with that definition in mind, to make something attractive or appealing, read the verse again. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Now we would use this word today to say that dress is very becoming. Or that is a very becoming haircut on him. Or he trimmed his beard and it was very becoming. There's any number of scenarios or contexts in which we would use that term today. And it means to make something appear beautiful and attractive. Now, this is an instruction to Titus. This is a word to the preacher. And the verses that we consider after this largely have to do with what he teaches people who are in his congregation or in the various churches that he travels to in first century Crete as he's here on the Isle of Crete. But these words were written to a gospel minister. Now, you're going to learn God's will for your life, what He would have you to do, how He would have you to behave, but understand that this is being filtered through this man of God named Titus. And so Paul begins exhorting him, Titus, speak thou the things which become, which make beautiful sound doctrine. In other words, Titus, teach in such a way that sound biblical principles look appealing and attractive to those that hear you. Now this is convicting in a way. Have you ever heard a sermon and you watch the man and he looks to be angry? You know, I've, I've seen a couple of messages and... In my life, I can think back on them, and I'm, I'm thinking about the man. If I were to just walk in off the street, and I don't know anything about the people, I don't know anything about the church, I don't know anything about the preacher. I come in off the street, and I sit down, and I begin to watch the sermon, and I think, who's this guy mad at? Have you ever seen a sermon? I say, seen a sermon. you ever seen a sermon that looked like that? I have. But we're to speak the things which become sound doctrine. In other words, I am to present the word in such a way that it is attractive and appealing to you. I should not look like I'm angry about the message. I don't know how a person could end up in such a state of mind that preaching the sweet message of salvation by grace would invoke in them the appearance of anger or hostility. Now, there have been a few times as a pastor, I come to church and there are things here that could make me angry. 
And there are times when I have to confront something from the pulpit that gives me knots in my stomach all night and all the morning of and all through the sermon. But even in that, I'm not to be angry. Let nothing be done through anger. Another way that we make the gospel not appealing is when we use it as a blunt object to pummel people in our presence. Now, I won't go into stories because most of the people I'm thinking about are still alive. But there have been times where you've got a preacher in the pulpit preaching and he gets wind that someone in the congregation disagrees with him or maybe even the church on a fundamental point of doctrine and it doesn't matter what he prepared for that day, that's going to be a subject. Wait a minute, I found out somebody from XYZ Church is here. Oh, we're going to hit that subject today, throw the notes out. What we're going to do is have a good old-fashioned Arminian skinning. Now, what's an Arminian skinning? It's when you get the straw man of the Arminian and you skin them at church instead of preaching the gospel. Let me just tell you that we can present the Word of God in such a way that it's appealing. It's going to be offensive enough by itself. Or we can present it in such a way that we use it to wound and injure even a struggling little sheep that comes in to have their soul fed, who doesn't know everything that we believe, but felt compelled to go experience Christ in a place. Now, to be very clear, there are moments when ministers of the gospel need to be very forward, very direct, and there are times that we drive away the wolves by the edge of the sword, the Word of God. And in our last message together from Titus chapter 1, we consider that subject. Does Paul suddenly get to chapter 2 and contradict himself? Notice what he says in Titus chapter 1. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And yet at the same time, we are to speak the things which make sound doctrine beautiful and appealing. Whether we rebuke sharply or we speak in a way to make sound doctrine appealing depends on the context and it depends on the audience. Think about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. There were times in Jesus' ministry when he was meek and lowly. He was like a little lamb. He was not abrasive. He was gentle. He was so loving to those that came to him. Usually in those moments, someone came to Jesus with tears in their eyes confessing their sin, weeping, begging him for a miracle or his mercy or forgiveness. And in every one of those cases, Jesus was meek and kind and accepting and receiving of them. But there are times that Jesus was as ferocious as a lion. What times are those? Well, one occurrence is when he goes into the temple and he makes a whip and he chases out all the livestock and he throws the tables of the money changers over. And he chases out those that bought and sold in the temple because they'd made God's house a house of merchandise. And he chases them from the building. Don't you know that was terrifying? Jesus went to his house and Jesus chased people out of his house who didn't need to be there. And it had to be terrifying. I already referenced John 8 and John 10 and Matthew 23. Don't you know Jesus was so ferocious when he stood up and he publicly condemned the scribes and the Pharisees. Context determines the tone. But as a general rule, we are to present the gospel in such a way that we make it attractive by the way that we say it. Again, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Now, this phrase sound doctrine is an interesting one. You know this word sound means free from error, and it's used in a variety of ways. You might say the ship is sound, and so it can set sail, and it meant free from damage. It was able to be trusted. It can mean solid. It can mean firm. It can mean well put together. In this usage, the word sound has reference to something that is free from error. And so sound doctrine means doctrine that is free from any sort of impurity. Peter would use a similar statement. It conveys the same thought in his writings that we are to pursue the sincere milk of the word. And that word there means unadulterated. In other words, we want to proclaim and stand for pursue doctrinal purity. 
I, as a minister, need to present the truth to people, but it needs to be done in a way that's appealing and made beautiful. Now, as we think about sound doctrine, another thing that I want to clarify is that usually when we say doctrine, we have reference to theology. I saw a great quote this week. Everyone is theological in some sense or another. Because theology is simply the study of God. An atheist who says, I do not believe in God, has just made a theological statement because they said they believe in no God, which is a theological statement. Every single person on the planet has some sort of theology in their mind. When we say doctrine, we usually mean theology. And so when we talk about doctrine, we'll talk about the doctrines of grace, salvation by grace. We can go through all of the heavyweight theological terms in the Word of God, like predestination, justification, sanctification, regeneration. But the word doctrine here simply means teaching. In other words, if I teach you how a man ought to love his wife, that's a doctrine because it's a teaching. The Bible teaches us how to be husbands how to be wives, how to be young men, how to be old men, how to be children, how to be parents, how to be servants, how to be masters. The Word of God teaches us in every area of our lives, and that teaching is doctrine. And so Scripture presents a doctrine of creation, a doctrine of salvation, a doctrine of ecclesiology, a doctrine of Christology, but it presents doctrines on family and doctrines on husbandship and doctrines on being a wife. The Word of God presents to us doctrines or teachings. When Paul is exhorting Titus here to speak the other things which become sound doctrine, you notice that statement ends in a colon and it continues through the following verses and the result of Paul making sound teaching appealing is that Aged men are sober, aged women likewise, that they may teach young women to be sober, to be discreet, that the young men likewise are exhorted to be sober-minded. By the way, if you've not noticed in every one of those descriptions, sober-mindedness is kind of an important thing. Maybe we'll comment on that in a moment. But the doctrine to which Paul refers here isn't talk about predestination in such a way that it's appealing that Aged men be sober. No, he's talking about any teaching from the Word of God. How to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, a good father, a good mother. All of that is teaching. All teaching is a doctrine. Scripture presents doctrine to us. We use that word politically. I can remember back because I've paid attention to government affairs years and years and years, but whatever the foreign policy of a president is, is called that man's doctrine. Years ago, back, I mean, 20 years ago, you had the Bush doctrine, and it was his foreign policy. We use that word in other contexts, and it simply means their policy or their teaching. I want you to understand that doctrine also has to do with how you live. Doctrine has to do with how you live. Sometimes people say he's a good doctrinal preacher, but not much of a practical preacher. Well, then he's not a good doctrinal preacher. Because the the Word of God would have us to understand that any subject that is taught on in the Word of God, that teaching is the doctrine of that subject. I hope that makes sense to you. Now, as we begin to look specifically at the intended effect of preaching, the intended effect of proclaiming what Scripture teaches about any number of subjects, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity and patience. The first bracket of person that we have brought to our attention is the aged men. Aged men. I'm thankful that we have aged men here today, but I notice that we don't have many aged men. In fact, even the aged men would say, we're not aged men. Aged men is always five years older than me. And it just keeps on moving up as we go through life. When I was a little boy, I thought 40 years old, that's old. I remember when my parents turned 30 and we thought, boy, they're over the hill. 
I could do things when I was 30 that I would not dare dream of doing now. I can play a VR video game and be sore for three days. What? Why? Well, <laughs> you're a decade beyond. Aged men are a blessing to have in the church, and I want you to know aged men have a role in the church. Aged women have an important role in the church. I think that in America today, we do not revere or respect the aged the way that we ought to revere and respect the aged. We do not look at them and honor them the way that we ought to honor them. And since most of the people today that I'm talking to are under 50 years old, I think, maybe it's about, maybe the median age here is about 45 or 40. We are still young enough that we need to look at our elders and respect them. And I would also encourage those of you that are young people, listen, respect your elders. Respect your elders. Now, it's hard to do when you're... Uh, now, Brother Jerry, you're not aged now. <laughs> Don't be jumping up. You know, in soccer, you can play up. Don't be playing up. <laughs> Don't be playing up. But we do need to respect our elders. We need to respect our elders. We live in a day where ages are pitted against each other, and so you find people that are Generation X and baby boomers who are criticizing millennials. I saw something the other day online, and it was, it was some knock at millennials, and they said anyone born before 1995. And I'm like, you do realize millennials are 40, right? Millennials are 40. Millennials are not teenagers. That's Gen Z. Gen Y are people my age. I'm a millennial. That's terrible. But it's the truth. But you have all of these old folks that constantly put down the young people, and you have all the young people that look at them and say, what, what is it that they say? Okay, boomer. Okay, but what they're doing is making fun of baby boomers. We have this constant belittling between old people and young people in this country, and I'm guilty of that as well. That's funny to say, okay, boomer, ha, 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 we all laugh because that's my parents' generation. But we ought to have respect from one generation to the next generation. Old people ought to want to train and love the young people as mentors, and young people ought to respect the aged people. Now, I'm being lighthearted with that on purpose because I don't want to come across as naggy, but it is something that needs to be brought to our attention and brought out in pulpits today. Paul begins to instruct the aged men. The aged men. Now, I heard a good sermon a few years ago by Elder Carl Staten, and he preached at our, at our association when it was at Briar Fork, about how Caleb and Joshua, as they go into Canaan's land, they were the only two who were over a certain age who left Egypt with Moses, who were allowed to go into Canaan's land, because, you know, all the Israelites were in unbelief. They murmured. They rejected the word of God to go in and take over the land. They said, there are giants there. There's no way we can defeat these cities of these ites. And so they begin to murmur against God. And God says, fine, none of you are going to enter into Canaan's land, except for a couple of notable exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. Those two 80-plus-year-old men who were in Egypt and then 40 years in the wilderness, you know what they do when they go into Canaan's land? They go take their mountain. They go take their hill. I call this one, I'm going to go take it. And it was a beautiful sermon to bring to your attention, those of you that are advanced in years, that as long as you are breathing in this world, God is not done with you. You have a purpose in the world and in the church. The aged men... Now, what does Paul specifically say about the aged men? Titus preached in such a way that sound teaching is appealing so that aged men are sober. That means that Titus is to make sober-mindedness look appealing to older men. That the aged men be sober. Now, obviously, we use the word today, sober, to have reference to someone who is not under the influence of a substance, whether alcohol or drugs. And I would exhort you, though Scripture doesn't present teetotalism because Jesus turned water to wine, and I've seen people try to go through grammatical loops and hoops to try to make that some sort of unfermented wine. It was wine. 
When Jesus turned water to wine, the master says, you know, people usually save the good wine for after people are well drunken. But you've, you've saved the best stuff for last. Well, that's kind of hard to do if it's unfermented Welches. Because people don't become well drunken on Welches. If you want a science experiment, go buy three gallons of it today and drink all three gallons of the Welches. And then tomorrow you will hate me, but you will not be drunken by the end of the day. But Scripture does warn over and over again about substance abuse. Never let a substance control you. You lose control of your mind, of your senses, of your impulses, of your emotions when you indulge in substances. We know what it means to be sober. We know what it means to be drunken. But when Paul writes this word, he has reference to so much more than abusing an illicit substance. He has reference to our thought process each and every day. And you find that this concept of being sober is something that applies to all of these age groups. That we ought to be sober-minded, clear-thinking our minds not hindered or inhibited by something else in this world. Now, I don't want to offend anyone here. I don't want to offend you. But because of the obsession over political issues in this country today, people have lost their minds. I'm glad you amended it. I thought you'd throw hymnals at me. We're so drunken... With politics and pundits and commentary and news footage, we can't think clearly. And it's on both ends. One of the things that we read here is a command to be temperate, and that word temperate means moderate in our behavior. Let's calm down. There is an excluded middle that neither extreme wants you to understand exists because everyone, the media included, puts you in the far extremes And tries to force you into either of those extremes saying, if you're not here, you're here, and you can be nowhere in between. Well, last time I checked, I don't want to be a fascist or a Nazi. You know, maybe there's a nice moderation we can have in the middle where we're just calm, peaceable, gentle people who lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and sincerity. Maybe I don't have to be out there throwing Molotov cocktails at government buildings or Target or Walmart. And flipping cars in the streets and beating people and attacking people. When those things start happening, that's not sober-mindedness. That's when people have lost their minds. How much more inclined to violence are people when they're drunk? You know, it takes the worst parts of your body or your flesh and amplify your worst traits. Amplifies your worst traits when you're inebriated when you're drunken. We are out of our minds in this country today. We're in this drunken fog, and it's leading to chaos and violence. And as Paul says, my friends, these things ought not so be. Be sober-minded. Take a step back, take a deep breath, and begin to discern the world around you according to the Word of God. Now, wait a minute. I did a radio program today aired today, we recorded it Tuesday, on not joining in with the mob. You've got mobs of people who are angry and violent and engaging in all sort of terrible behavior. Reading from Old Testament to New, there are many mobs in the Word of God, and I can't think of one in the Word that was actually a good place to be. You've got Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got the mobs that tried to arrest Jesus. You've got the mobs that beat Peter. You've got the mobs that arrested Peter and John. You've got the mobs that arrested Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. One mob after another, and not a one of them was a good place to be. Child of God, don't find yourself there. All right, let me get off that soapbox. Sober means clear thinking. Child of God, think clearly. Think biblically. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5. Aged men should also learn through Titus' teaching to be grave. 
that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate. Grave is a word that we'll look at a couple of times in this. You have a variation of it later in the word gravity, both in our language and the Greek language. Variation of the same word. But this word grave means marked by dignity. Marked by dignity. Let me just say, aged men, walk in such a way that you are marked by dignity. What an honorable thought is that for an aged man as he trusts in the Lord Jesus to be dignified, to be a dignified man, marked by dignity. To mark someone is to take note of them. And it also means to be serious-minded. Now, a merry heart doeth like a good medicine, and I enjoy laughing, and I enjoy pulling pranks on a couple of you in particular. Brother Hewlett and I, I think, have laughed till we've cried before about things. We, we enjoy having fun together, but we should grow into gravity, serious-minded. There are things in the world we need to be serious about. Everything shouldn't be a joke to us. Again, there are, times, there are times to laugh, just like there are times to cry. And a merry heart does like a good medicine, but we are to grow men into grave thinking, serious-mindedness, marked by dignity. Sober, grave, temperate. The word temperate means self-restrained and moderate. In other words, I'm not some sort of a flying-off-the-handle extremist. I have control over myself. Probably one of the most difficult things for me to learn when I was a younger man is to be self-controlled when it came to my temperament. Because I had a what? What's the root of those terms? Temper. And I would become angry. We all have a sin to deal with. That was one of mine that I had to work very hard to mortify. We talked about it from the previous chapter. There are times when the enemies of the cross will get in your face and scream and yell. And if you're a person that is temperamental, well, you might rear back and just knock the daylights out of them. And that's not the way disciples are to behave. But we're to be temperate. We're not to be these extremists. Sound in the faith. Again, sound means pure, free of impurities in the faith. The word faith there doesn't mean faith is in your trust in Christ, but faith is in the body of truth to be believed. In the Bible, the word faith can have reference to your trust, but it can also have reference to the overall teaching of Scripture. For instance, in the book of Jude, Jude exhorts us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Faith a body of truth to be believed, once delivered to the saints. Aged men, I would encourage you, I would exhort you to be sound without impurity in the faith, in the teachings of God's Word. In charity, in patience. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a great example of charity. The word charity translates from one of the words that translates love, the Oxford English Dictionary on Historic Principles defines charity as the disposition to judge hopefully of another's intents and actions and to make allowances for their shortcomings. In other words, if I'm charitable, if I see you do something, I'm not going to think the worst. I'm going to think the best. And I'm also, if I see you do something that is wrong, make allowances for your shortcomings. That is charity. Now, that's also love, but it finds a little more specific of a definition based upon the context. Charity is elaborated on by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Charity suffers long, is kind, it envieth not, it vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, it is all good things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. You read that and it convicts you. There's no room for bullies in charity. There's no room for mean girls in charity. There's no room for nastiness in charity. There's no room for passive-aggressive behavior in charity. But we're to be 
like little lambs, kind, meek, gentle, loving, forgiving, humble. You find all of that wrapped up in that word charity. Someone used to often define it, my hearing is love in action. And while it is, that's such a loaded phrase because you read about what sort of actions that it is to be engaged in and it it permeates your entire life. Aged men are to epitomize charity. Now, by the way, there was a book that used to advertise like crazy on my social media accounts, Grumpy Old Church People. And I never bought the book. I never clicked the link, but I saw it, and it had this old guy with this grimace wearing a fedora in a suit on the cover. Grumpy Old Church People. I think it was a book to try to Exhort us to be happier. I don't have any idea. I didn't buy it. didn't want to buy it. May we never be grumpy old church people because as the agent of a church, we're to walk in what? Charity. According to the definition of charity in 1 Corinthians 13 that we just read. And also that the aged men would walk in patience. The word patient means unswerved. And so patience means that you're staying in the way. Endurance. So many times patience found its usage in the Bible in contexts that spoke of or wrote of persecutions. And we say I'm a patient person and we mean I'm good at putting up with people that get on my nerves. That's more of long-suffering. Patience means that I am undeterred. I am unswerving. I am going to remain in the way no matter what comes my way. Aged men, be unswerved in your faith. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Now he transitions into the aged women. And I know that we're not allowed to say that anymore because it's not politically correct. But look, sometimes you are older and sometimes you are younger. And that's not a thing that we should say in this country. Well, that's not really the way that we talk. No, it is the way that we should talk. There are aged men and there are aged women. There are young men and there are young women. And we need to recognize that to understand that each demographic has their own struggles. I want you to know, aged people and young people, that you are needed and you are loved. And the Word of God has something for you, regardless of whether you're single or married or teen or in your 90s. God has a purpose for you in His house and in His church. The aged women, likewise, which means what applied to the aged men also to them, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Make holiness beautiful, aged women. Make holiness beautiful. When I think of some of the older sisters that I've had the privilege of knowing, there are a handful of them that just made holiness look outright beautiful. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because you might look in the mirror in the morning and you think, I do not look as beautiful in my mind as I did when I was 19. And by the way, I'm starting to feel your pain. You know, I've got pictures of me when I was 20. I wish I still looked like I was 20 in the face. I don't. I've got wrinkles and brown spots and my skin looks bad. Rachel bought me lotion this week. I'm like, what are you trying to tell me? Men's care lotion. And what is that? Anyway, you look in the mirror and you think, I'm not, I'm not the beautiful girl that I used to be. Let me tell you, you can make holiness beautiful. There is more beauty in holiness than there is in the vain attraction of this world. Don't think for a minute that I'm no longer beautiful. I'm no longer... A, no, there's a beauty in holiness that the aged men and women need to understand that they can have that goes far beyond any of the carnal beautiness or beautifulness of this world. Beautiness. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Make holiness beautiful. Not false accusers. Sometimes when we talk about other people, especially to others when they're not around. We would call that gossip. And so many times that which is spoken in gossip is false. 
Sisters, I exhort you not to be false accusers. Not given to much wine. We know what that means. Teachers of good things. Now, we like to emphasize the fact, biblically, that only God called men who meet the qualifications of elder are permitted to be ordained to be the pastor teacher of a church. And that is biblical and that is right. But never for a moment think, sisters, that you do not have a teaching role. First of all, mothers are to teach their children. Secondly, the aged women are to teach the younger women. Now you might hear that and think, okay, so when are we going to have a three-night seminar led by the older women at our church where they teach the younger women of our church? Paul doesn't have seminars in mind in Titus chapter 2. Now it's so much more powerful than that. Paul is speaking of aged women teaching younger women every day as they interact with them, as they depict holiness to them. They mentor the younger women. The younger women have an example. The younger women have a teacher. The younger women have a coach, if you will, to guide them in holy behavior. That they may teach the young women to be sober. There we have the word again, sober, clear thinking. Now listen to this one. To love their husbands, to love their children. Scripture warns men against being bitter to their wives. But Scripture also warns wives against being hostile and naggy to their husbands. Now, you've done gone to meddling. Sisters, young women, God would have you to love your husbands and your children. The world doesn't want you to love your husbands and children. The world doesn't want you to have children. The world wants you to marry somebody of the same gender, or if you conceive a child, to end the pregnancy, to use any means necessary to stop yourself from having a child. The world doesn't want you to have a child, but God wants you to have children, and God wants you to love those children. You know, I've preached on this subject before, and we'd be very careful. I've preached on this subject before, knowing the audience and seeing women who were outright nasty to their husbands, nodding their head and amening when I get on this passage. And I just want to stop and point at them and say, stop acting like I'm talking to somebody else. I'm not. It's you. Thou art the man or the woman. This isn't anything the way I planned. It's okay. Sisters, love your husbands. Don't nag and belittle them. Don't harp on them. Don't ride their case all the time like they're your eldest child. They're not. They're the man of the house. Well, sometimes he doesn't act like it. Then pray for him. And if need be, talk to his pastor with him. And it can be dealt with. Nothing feels worse than a husband who feels like his wife thinks he's a mother. We don't marry our mothers. We leave from our mothers to be with our wife. You know, he picked you over his mother. He doesn't need a second one. He has one. He left her. <laughs> Ladies, don't be harsh to your husbands or your children. Now let me get on that subject for a minute. Lord have mercy. Buckle up. Who wore a helmet to church today? We have to train our children. We have to discipline our children. We have to make them do things they don't want to do. No child is born into this world saying, I love brushing my teeth and combing my hair. My kids wouldn't wear shoes if I didn't make them. They really are half feral. But at the same time, don't break their little spirits, riding them and screaming at them and chewing them out and being all over them and being negative. You will break their spirit and... You know, we hear about flying the coop. They may just fly as far away from the coop as they can when they get old to escape. 
Moms and dads, don't be overly harsh to your little ones. It's a struggle that we have. Now, there are times in the teenage years with boys in particular, I've got this saying that I have to go Nick Saban on them from time to time. Now, you know what that means. That little five foot six man stomping around on the sidelines with 300-pound men afraid of him because he goes off and they get in line. And sometimes little five foot eight Ben has to do that in the home too. But in general... Lord, help us not to be so overwhelming to our children that they avoid us and dread being around us. Mamas, love your children. Older women, teach those younger women to love their children. To love their husbands, to love their children. That the word of God be not blasphemed. We need to understand that if we don't fulfill the role that God has given us to fulfill in the home, whether it's a husband or a wife, that the word of God will be blasphemed. What does the word blasphemy mean? It means to speak evil. You see, my husbandship, my responsibility as a father is to depict a couple of notable examples of husband and father in the word of God. God is our father and Christ is our husband. We're the bride of Christ. If I fail to live up to my responsibility as a husband or a father, I am speaking evil of the word of God by my actions. And likewise, you sisters, the same can be said for you. The word of God is blasphemed. I skipped over a phrase here for the younger women. Discreet. I think we all know what discretion means, but it translates from the same Greek word as temperate, which we've already commented on. They are to be chaste, which means holy. They're to be keepers at home, and you sisters, I really want you to understand what this word means, and I want you husbands to know it too. To be a keeper at home doesn't mean housekeeping. Now, obviously, that's a responsibility. We've redefined the word keeper to have reference to the broom and the mop and the vacuum. You know what the word keeper means in a King James Bible? It means a prison guard. I make so many jokes about that to my kids. There is no escape. But what he's saying is that you mamas, you guard your homes. You guard your children. You guard the influences in their lives. And there might be times that you pick up a weapon and repel something, figuratively or literally. If there are influences that they don't need in their lives and you repel that, you run that away. You guard what they watch on TV. You guard what they listen to on the radio. You guard their language. You guard what they read. You guard them. Mamas, you are guards of your home. Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Of all the mysteries to me in this passage, we have all of these statements, and then Paul comes to young men, and he simply says, exhort them to be sober-minded. And you just wonder, what else? What else? Paul told Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. If you're wondering what a young man is, that word youth translates from a word that was commonly used in the first century in the Greek language to have reference to someone under 40. I've got a few months of youth left. People are saying, is it a good year? It's a great year. There's still a three on the front of my age. Next year, not so much. Young men, those of you, I suppose, under 40, be sober-minded. But in a way, in my mind, Paul does give some expanded information to the young man in Titus chapter 2. But he does so... A, in an interesting way, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. Paul is writing this to a younger man, and when he comes to young men, Titus' own demographic 
He begins to shift the focus onto Titus' life and tell Titus, look, you depict what a young man ought to be for every young man that you come across. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, clear-thinking, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. In other words, Titus, what are you to accomplish in the lives of young men? You're to depict good works for them that they walk in good works. In doctrine, in teaching, showing uncorruptness. Gospel ministers have the responsibility of being pure in their doctrine to the best of their ability to display and depict doctrinal purity to the young men around them. You know, in our day, if it really doesn't matter how you live and it really doesn't matter what you believe, you get like a 15-minute pep talk about Jesus by a guy in skinny jeans who kind of, you know, wobbles around stage. Doctrinal uncorruptness. If there's one thing younger men get from being around me as a gospel minister, I hope they understand the importance of purity in biblical teaching. Doctrinal uncorruptness. Gravity translates from the same word, a derivative of the word grave, which meant serious. Sincerity, which means purity. We use the word sincerity to mean someone that really believes something. When your heart is in complete purity about a subject, you really, really believe what you're saying. In all sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Persecution is an inevitability. Even in our day of religious liberty and the right to self-defense and the right to be left alone, there is still opposition from the enemy At minimum, they call you names and they accuse you. Paul tells Titus, Titus, live in such a way that though they condemn you, nothing they say of you, nothing they look for in you is contrary to the word of God that they will be ashamed finding nothing evil that can be held against you. We saw that perfectly depicted in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. They brought false witness after false witness and nothing stuck. Why? Because he was perfect, he lived such an impeccable life that there was nothing they could accuse him of. May we, and particularly I, as a minister, live in such a way that... No enemy of the cross, no enemy of the gospel, though he searched my life with a fine-tooth comb, would have any room to say he is guilty and thereby discredit myself, disgrace the cause, and scandalize myself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this relevant passage to all of us in this room. Lord, we pray for our aged men for our aged women, for our young women and our young men, this room full of people, dear God, that you would bless them. Lord, help them be what you've called them to be. We know that the Spirit and your grace has given them an internal teaching that we could not do. But Lord, knowing that they are spiritually living in Christ, we pray, Father, that we could better instruct them how they ought to live, We pray, Lord, that this would be a body that edifies itself, that the aged and the middle-aged and the young would all work together and be together as one body, that they would grow, that they would live above the sin of this world. Oh, Father, deliver us from this culture in which we live, from the confusion, from the anger, from the angst, understanding that we have a kingdom not of this world. We've got a king that isn't going anywhere. Jesus, our true leader. Help us to understand that your church and kingdom is so much more important than the temporal kingdoms of this world. 
Help us to be citizens indeed of that. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. We have fallen so short of this message. But we pray, Lord, that we do better today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.